We're starting with some big changes in the NZ Herald's political team. Audrey Young is stepping down as the political editor of our biggest paper. She's becoming a special correspondent. And Audrey is one of the Press Gallery's most experienced members. And uh, she's been, I think this is my count, uh, at the Herald 33 years, I believe. And I think 27 of that is at the Press Gallery. Please correct me, Herald staff, if I'm wrong there. Uh, she's covered and in many cases outlasted a litany of politicians from Jim Bolger to Jacinda Ardern. And I think she even had a role in, in your formative years as a journalist, Susanna. Hayden, this is correct. She, uh, well, Audrey, if you're listening, thank you, because back in in the 80s, early to mid-80s, uh, in my sixth form year, as it used to be known, Audrey was my editor at Newspapers and Education, which was run out of Newspaper newspaper House or Newspapers House and uh, Willow Street, Wellington. And, um, yeah, I'd take my copy to her in my school uniform, and she would sub it, and when it was ready, it would run in the newspaper on a Monday. And a good boss. A huge influence, very, very positive influence. So this is an amazing moment. Uh, amazing, yeah, incredibly. It's big. Uh, uh, ended up going on to even even arguably greater things. Her current deputy, Claire Trevette, will be taking over from her. Now, Claire's very well thought of, known for her political commentary that's sort of acerbic and sometimes stinging while never being sort of bombastic. Uh, her deputy will be Derek Cheng, who's another Herald veteran who has recently been one of the strongest and most vocal critics, uh, critical voices in the papers coverage of the government's MIQ management. And Audrey, how has she been described as a journalist? So I, I surveyed some colleagues around the press gallery today, and it's fair to say, uh, I, I actually went to the Herald as well, and I think this is accurate. She was pretty no-nonsense, and she uh, doesn't suffer fools. She's not one to pull punches, whether in her reporting analysis or her dealings with colleagues or political figures. Uh, one of the gallery members half-jokingly described her as pretty terrifying. So that person also said her institutional knowledge is incredible, that she knows pretty much every bit of political history from the last 30 years. She's one of very few journalists that commands respect even from high-ranking politicians, including the PM. And so how have politicians found her, or what have they said to you? Uh, I haven't talked to any politicians, but politicians have talked about Audrey over the years. So notably, Chris Finlayson, former Attorney General, uh, described her as the best Bush lawyer he knew in his valedictory speech. Grant Robertson, current finance minister, long-time politician, he put a motion in Parliament in 2018 congratulating her on 30 years of service at the Herald. Uh, and I guess that's a signal of their respect, but also of their sense of self-preservation because uh, a journalist at a rival publication said Audrey's success rate on interview requests with ministers was much higher. Uh, they were quite jealous. I think they were maybe a little bit resentful, much higher than others at the gallery. And it, I guess it just pays to keep the political editor of The Herald on side. And there's just been an interview by The Herald of Audrey. Did that reveal anything interesting? She revealed a lot about what the press gallery is 
like? And it was pretty interesting. It was a pretty open and honest account. One of the questions was about whether there's too much of a dalliance going on between certain journalists and politicians, whether there's too much closeness there. Because the press gallery operates in Parliament, they're in close quarters to politicians. It's sort of notorious that there's a lot of fraternising going on. Uh, She said, uh, yeah, pretty much there's no point denying it, and she noted that a couple of journalists from the gallery have gone on to actually marry politicians. Uh, She also noticed... uh, noted how sexist the gallery has been and and politics in general. I'm not saying that this is uh, a a phenomenon that has gone away, but in the past it was even worse than today. Women were not allowed to become proper members of the press gallery until 1965. She noted that Prime Minister Gordon Coates, he was a Prime Minister 1925 to 28, a fact I didn't know, uh, once gave a press conference in his office, whiskey in hand, and when he needed to relieve himself, continued the interview in the nearby bathrooms. Of course, it was only men, I guess, that followed him. Uh, things have changed a lot these days. And uh, she said even the stereotype of politicians in the gallery being filled with sort of work-hard, play-hard play types that have these all-nighter sessions is no longer quite true. So if you are thinking of going into the press gallery these days, don't expect too many all-night drinking sessions with Grant Robertson. It may not be the case anymore. And then the note that politicians have feared Audrey going on holiday, what's that about? Uh, I, before I, I, I feel like I singled out Grant Robertson as, as the face of all my drinking sessions. That was just a name that came to mind. Uh, politicians in general, I should have said. Uh, yeah, there is a fear about Audrey going on holiday. And to the extent it's uh, that Patrick Gower has dubbed it the curse of Audrey. And that's not an unwarranted fear. Just to list them, she was in Queensland for the collapse of the National NZ First Coalition in 1998. She's in San Diego when Jenny Shipley was rolled by Bill English in 2001. She's in Bangkok when uh, Don Brash was about to roll Bill English in 2003 and in Vietnam when John Key took over from Brash in 2006. Uh, she was also on holiday when Labour MP Darren Hughes stepped down and when United Future leader Peter Dunn resigned as a minister. So, I mean, I know the statisticians say that correlation uh, does not equal causation but I believe this is simply too suspicious to be a coincidence Patrick Gower is right there is a curse and hopefully it's been broken and apparently the politicians some politicians had actually responded in order to handle this problem? Yeah, in 2018 Paula Bennett actually wrote a draft bill banning Audrey from going on holiday without the permission of Nationals Caucus. Uh, It wasn't introduced at Parliament, but it did seem to fix the issue because I think Bennett uh, she left politics, of course. Her boss back then, Simon Bridges, was was rolled as leader, but uh, I think Audrey was on deck and at work for both of those events, so maybe the curse was lifted. So now that Audrey is stepping down or stepping to the side or stepping away, do you think this is going to change the Herald's political coverage? Um, I don't. I don't know, but I don't think there's, there there will be a huge immediate landmark change that happens. Claire Trevette has been at the gallery for fourteen years, so one journalist described it as replacing experience with experience. Uh, Claire's sensibilities, though, in my experience, might be a, a little less stylistic, but stylistically buttoned up. Uh, you might see a few more elements of cheeky humour creeping in. Maybe some of those reporters will be allowed to run a little more wild. Uh, watch this space. 
Watch this space indeed. And you wanted to talk about the coverage of the government's proposal to scrap DHBs and particularly to set up a Māori Health Authority. That's right. There has been some really good coverage of this issue from several political journalists, including the aforementioned Audrey Young. She wanted, uh, she actually used cabinet papers to detail how Heather Simpson, who was asked to review the health system for the government, uh, was essentially overruled by ministers when when her report got to cabinet. Uh, Simpson wanted a watered down DHB system, but the government scrapped that entirely and went with a much more ambitious proposal. Luke Melpass at Stuff he also wrote about the necessity of the overhaul and the political pitfalls it, it entails. The spin-off uh, consulted twelve experts with backgrounds in medicine and health sector governments. Uh, but a couple of outlets didn't decide to leave their commentary to the experts and instead offered up some old, perhaps less valuable voices. Who are you referring to? I'm speaking primarily about the one and only Don Brash. So he was interviewed on Magic Talk, which is probably a bit predictable given that station's market. But when that interview aired, it was inexplicably written up by News Hub as well. And that might have been a little more understandable this time last year when News Hub and Magic Talk were part of the same stable all under MediaWorks. But now News Hub has been acquired by Discovery. Magic Talk is still with MediaWorks. It doesn't really uh, have to write up the content of its stable mates at Magic Talk. It did this willingly out of its own volition. Not sure why it did. So just talk me through, what's the issue with Don Brash being interviewed on this topic? Well, just for one, he's not exactly an expert on the subject matter. He's not a doctor, as far as I know. He's never worked so much as the till at the corner pharmacy. He's an economist, a former Reserve Bank governor and National Party leader. He's essentially an expert on monetary policy and narrowly losing the 2000 and Five, I think it is election. So on the makeup of the health system, and particularly its interactions with Māori, his views are less relevant. And the only qualification that he seems to have in this area, and this is true of quite a lot of his commentary on stuff, is that he said stuff about Māori in the past, much of which has been seen as racist. And that's not particularly a qualification for being invited on to talk about a whole range of things. I'm not saying that you have to ban every non-expert from commentary. God knows that I would be banned uh, from talking ever again. But it's getting a little bit boring. You know what he's going to say. The headline here was that Don Brash, of course, is strongly opposed to, quote, disaster Māori Health Authority. Not exactly a big surprise, not adding a huge amount to the debate. I mean, have you gone through the other topics that Don Brash has been brought out to talk about regarding Māori? Have you got a bit of a list? Not me. I have. I've actually stolen a list off Madeline Chapman, who uh, at the time was writing for the spin-off. She compiled some of Don Brash's media appearances on Māori issues in an article for that organisation. And so he weighed in on the use of Te Deo Māori by RNZ reporters, whether or not Māori have too many rights, the demise of the Māori Party, Māori relations and government, Māori history, Māori equality, Māori seats. And this is just a list of some of them. Half of them are by the AM show. Uh, in response, Chapman offered her services as a commentator on monetary policy, her time in charge of the Reserve Bank, and what it's like to be a 77-year-old Pākehā man. All areas where she is a 20-something-year-old 
Samoan woman has about as much expertise as Brash does on Māori health governance. So why do some media organisations continue to approach Don Brash on these topics? Yeah, I'm not sure it's adding a huge amount of value. And I think, I mean, I'd just be theorising it's a couple of things. I think partly because they feel his views still represent, of course, a large chunk of their audience and they want to speak to that part of their audience. That's probably the case with Magic Talk. What I'm a little bit less sympathetic to is an organisation, perhaps like News Hub, uh, taking that commentary because it gets a reaction. Because well, some people will call it outrage bait, rage bait. It's the people who hate it click on it, the people who love it click on it, and that just drives up their numbers. Uh, those numbers, when they sell them to an advertising, uh, when they sell them to an advertiser, I mean, it doesn't go down on the spreadsheet, doesn't go down on the stats, that they were alienating a large section of their audience. The theory is that you can sell those clicks to advertisers, whether they came from love or hate. Uh, now, a lot of companies have pursued that kind of strategy, that kind of clicks at all costs strategy, and found it to be a bit of a strategic black hole. For one thing, Facebook and Google are still dominating that digital ad market. It's not actually translating to that many dollars. Uh, And some media companies have come to the conclusion that they're better off just fixing their focus on becoming an established, trusted brand. That was certainly Stuff's theory last year when they talked about this. They banned clickbait uh, on their site and they sort of focused in on becoming a much more a trusted brand and selling that kind of high quality idea to advertisers. And that seems to be working. Uh, the Herald has pursued a premium strategy as well, which is very similar, though it sort of sometimes dips its toes in that ultra clickable content. Uh, in general, though, there's just not really a case for getting Don Brash to talk about Māori health. There are plenty of voices about this new authority out there, including a bunch of sceptical ones. I mean, Morning Report, they had uh, Tarmac Solomon on it, criticising the proposal. Uh, he's a former acting chair of Canterbury DHB. Uh, we'd kind of More views like his would be useful. There's so many people out there. We don't need to hear the same views repeated, reheated, hashed out all over again and again and again. We've heard them before. They're getting repetitive. New York, media dramas. Let's have this as our final topic tonight. Take it away. That's right. The story doing the rounds in the conservative media over in the US lately. This is an audio clip of it. Every migrant that makes their way across the border illegally is issued a welcome kit. Inside that welcome kit, well, a book by Vice President Kamala Harris. Yeah, not just any book, by the way, Will. This is a book that presents Kamala Harris as a superhero to the children who are coming across the border. As it turns out, that's completely bollocks. That's false. The book wasn't being given out to migrant migrant children coming across the border. Fact checkers found a single copy of that book had been donated to a book drive for migrant children. That was where that story came from. Despite that, It's spread all around the disinformation networks and U.S. right-wing media. It was shared by several prominent Republicans, including the party's chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. The story uh, was initially written by the New York Toast, the New York Toast, (laughs) the New York Post, uh, and it edited it and issued a kind of a retraction for it. And have there been any consequences? Of course not. Consequences for misinformation. What a what a crazy idea that is. No, of course not. Uh, there has been no consequences for the New York Post particularly, but there has for the reporter that wrote it. Uh, Laura Italiano, she decided to resign, and she actually said in her resignation tweets announcing it, 
and tweets announcing her resignation, she was forced to write that story, even though she knew it was false and that she should have pushed back harder, which is pretty damning of the editorial leaders at the New York Post. So the fault here really lies not so much with her, maybe a little bit, but with the editors who seem content to knowingly put out information they know is wrong, but again is clickable. And that's again a problem that goes down to some of the big incentives driving commercial media and particularly with those executives' ethics.